Hello, fellow cannabis enthusiasts. This is Chip Baker from The Real Dirt. And on today's Dirt, I have some lost episodes. That's right. A while back, I recorded a handful of episodes and misplaced my SD card. Now, the SD card's a little bitty uh, card that we record all of these episodes on and goes into this fancy machine that helps us record it. And then this little bitty card got lost someplace in the couch of the Molecule Studios, as a matter of fact. I found the card, and on it, it had three or four great episodes, Kevin Jordy's being one of them. Now, if you're interested in this episode or others, please go to therealdirt.com or subscribe. Please subscribe on our iTunes the Real Dirt Podcast with Chip Baker. So you can listen to this episode and others. You can also listen to it on therealdirt.com easily. Just play it without downloading it. So I've known Kevin for a number of years. We met maybe 10 years ago in Humboldt. He had a medical dispensary. He took over a local medical dispensary, one of the first in Arcata. And kind of really turned it around. He began selling clones. He began uh, promoting organic methods and really pushed the limits of local medical cannabis laws, really helped educate other local people and uh, people around the world about the different strains, the different effects of cannabis. Now, Kevin's not a well-known figure outside of the cannabis community. He doesn't have a seed company. He has this local genetics company, Wonderland Gardens, now in Garberville, California, where they curate all of the finest ganja strains that we have today. They plant seeds, they collect clones. And in the past, they've really tried to focus on organic gardening techniques, organic pesticides, organic fertilizer. So I've always given them a salute for that. That's for sure. The library of genetics that they have is immense. If you want anything, that's definitely the place to go. Wonderland Nursery in Garberville, California. You know, many people, even experienced cannabisors, uh, I just made that up right there. That's a great word. They don't really know the difference between the genetics of the cannabis that they're growing. Most people, many, many, many people just put their cannabis on one growth, one flower formula, one harvest date, because it it needs to be commercially viable for them. Kevin has been able to catalog and document all of the different flowering and vegging qualities of any of his known strains. It's pretty remarkable at the wealth of knowledge that anyone could gain by going into to his shop. You know, now they're not an, an online presence, uh, even though Kevin is online on Facebook. Check him out. And, and he does have some uh, courses that you, you maybe can look, look for on the Internet and download as well. But he's really just been able to bring a lot to the whole cannabis movement. I mean, you could be even in the legal cannabis world or the non-legal cannabis world. You're really just trusting what your dealer is saying about the cannabis, about what type of weed that you're actually purchasing. You know, many dealers, 
in uh, private market areas, they might not be to blame because they're just accepting what their dealer says. Few people can actually look at the flowers of different herbs and tell the strain it is by looking at it or by smelling at it or be able to sniff out the genetic history of it. It's really important. There's some online resources. I think, let me pronounce this right, phylosgalaxy.com. And they have a map, the phylos map, and it maps out the genetic history of all of the cannabis that people give them for their test. So, you know, they have like a, a written documentation of what's what and what's a hybrid of what. But it's really hard to trust your supplier over his level of knowledge solely because, you know, there, there's not that much information out there. And people just, they'll say, oh, hey, this is a sativa uh, OG Kush. It's a sativa. And then other people will say, no, it's an indica, you know, because of it makes you feel this way. It's a sativa because it grows this way. It's not so much misinformation, but it's confusion. And I really invite and look forward to the oncoming genetic testing and cataloging of different types of ganja. You know, that to increase that level of knowledge so that I can go into a grow store, into a, well, not a grow store, into a uh, dispensary, and look for gelato, and it'd be there. And it'd actually be gelato, and look for you know, Bubba Kush, and it'd actually be Bubba Kush, or look for OG Kush, or Triangle OG, and it'd actually be those strains, and not just the name strained by the dealer. So I look forward to this information. Kevin's really, like, helping people with this, and in a small pocket of the world up in Humboldt County, which still probably is the largest producer of ganja in the world, even with all of the huge, large legal gardens throughout the country, there's still thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of small and medium and large-scale commercial gardens up there. It's really this incredible like pocket of cultural information. Without further ado, I'm going to start this episode. Enjoy it. If you have any questions, please uh, ask them on our uh, website um, or on our Facebook account. Like I said, if you like this episode or others, download them at therealdirt.com or go to our iTunes account and look up for The Real Dirt Podcast. So here it is, Kevin Jordy. Once again, you have reached The Real Dirt. On today's Dirt, I have two Humboldt County legends, Kevin Jordy from Wonderland Nursery and Joe Brown, Humboldt Lifer. What's up, guys? Yo. It's a nice, nice to day. be here. Oh, yeah, man. I'm so glad I got you guys up here. Trying to get Kevin up here for a while, and uh, he's so busy with all the stuff that he's got going on. Kevin has been running one of the largest nurseries for cannabis in probably the world, definitely in Northern California for the past, I don't know, seven, eight years, Kevin? How long? The new shop's five, but we've been running large nursery apps probably for about nine years total. For about total. nine yeah. years. He's really pioneered the way with medical cannabis. And uh, he's involved with so many cannabis things, uh, the Golden Tarp Awards, He's involved with a Port Royale, a cannabis farm, 
Wonderland Nursery that, of course, is the genetics resource for all of the great genetics in the world of cannabis. You can get them right there at Wonderland Nurseries. I'm forgetting something, though, Kevin. What else here? Oh, the Gangier. The Gangier, yes. His web presence, Gangier, which really defines the cannabis culture lifestyle and and what it's coming to be. Yeah, who you know, who are we? Because we've been historically called, you know, pot growers, dope growers, but we do so much more than that. And then everyone now wants to be an entrepreneur. Everybody I meet is a CEO. And <laughs> I'm still like a cannabis culturalist. Right, right, right. I know. It's, everybody used to be growers or dealers. Yeah. That used to be the separation. Mm -hmm. You've seen it all, man. I mean, I don't quite know when we our paths crossed in Humboldt years ago, but in the early, early medical scene, like you really have seen it all. You've seen it in the old days, you know, the dirt road, private cannabis grows to like new modern cannabis, man. You've like, you, you've really been a part of it and seen it all. If there's anybody that's a pioneer, you're a pioneer, Kevin. Thank you. And Joe has been a, a long time fixture here in Humboldt County. If you know, you know, he's sitting there with a smile on his face. <laughs> oh, I've just lived a privileged life in Humboldt, just as a worker. Yeah, just as a worker. <clears throat> just to work for hydro stores, black market farms, distribution companies that are in permit process. It's been a dream life. Like Bo, you know, Bo Jackson, Bo No, well, Joe No. Joe No. Yeah, yeah. I was, no. I was blessed to find this place. It, yeah, was a, it was an accident. I feel the same way. So as I've been up here the past couple of weeks, I keep talking to my friends and former customers and current customers and you know, other ganja growers, just chatting with them about what's going on with their lives, the business, where they think it's going. And there's a lot of fear out there. And I try to like be a, a beacon of shining light and, you know, say, don't be fearful, but it's change, right? People are scared of change. Truth. Right. And I'm sure Kevin down in Southern Humboldt, you're hearing the same conversation. Am I right? Oh yeah, no. It's it's a a, a a very abrupt change. The change is inevitable; occurs continuously, but typically at not such a, a fast pace. And I think that's what's scaring people so much is that you're being put on a timetable. And cannabis was basically timeless. We were held in a, a stabilized situation for a really long time, and then all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, people are having to come into compliance, and a lot of people are having to go out of business. And I don't think anybody planned, you know, six months ago to have it happen today. All the laws are just being built on top of each other, and it really is a rush to marketplace. And uh, there's going to be some people that make mistakes. I mean, you know, we were we were talking about some potential mistakes earlier that people mm -hmm. were making with construction, and that's going to happen. It's going to be a learning process. How are people going to convert from this old private market industry and gray market industry into this new legal cannabis industry? Man, that's a, that's a good question for a lot of people because I think that the question had to have been posed years prior. And so unfortunately, because, you know, as a culture, we were forced to live in secrecy. We basically adopted that as a behavioral norm where we all lived in secrecy and trusted no one and, and kept ourselves out of the picture and also didn't really try to go find out what the picture was. And so right now is, it would be a terrible time to figure out what you're going to do. But I think that, you know, in Southern Humboldt, Eastern Humboldt, you have a lot of people that are historically bold. And they were also pretty bold in trying to get themselves to understand what to do. And so they started proactively working on developing brands. They started trying to understand how to go into efficiency. People started really trying to work on organic methodologies pertaining to pest control and just growth in general, because we've used so much 
chemical assisters for so long and PGRs, fungicides and pesticides that really the skill set and the toolbox is, is truncated. It's been shortened and diminished because of it. Absolutely. And I think that what you're seeing is that those that were able to say, listen, I'm going to put down the Avid, I'm putting down the Microbutrinol, I'm going to put down my Bushmaster, I'm putting stuff down that doesn't work in the future and making those decisions so that you can actually get a product into a market that will be very regulated. Those people, I think, have a really good chance because as we know, California is, you know, 88% of the testing supposedly is dirty pot. The bottom line is people that are producing material that'll make it into the new system have a window. That window will allow them to understand what to do over the next couple of years and refine their process. Now, what happens in a couple of years, none of us know because once they take the doors off the, you know, complete control, meaning unlimited growth canopy, right? then I'm not quite sure how any of us function, but that's going to be, you know, five years from now. Right. And so I think the market's going to regulate it. Market's going to regulate it. And I think that the white market situation is good for individuals that are able to produce at an affordable level. And I think a lot of the Humboldt farms are actually better off than most places because most people here actually own the farms. Mm -hmm. So unlike like Salinas or Monterey, where you're coming in with investment capital, you're paying 30 bucks a square foot for rent. Mm-hmm. and you're having to come up with ungodly overhead. Yeah, absolutely. The, the overhead here is a lot better for most of us because we already owned our properties. All we had to do was do very expensive conversions. Right. But at right. least the properties owned itself. And so this way, once we paid for the conversion, we pay for the work, the margins should be adequate to allow the cultivators a, a pretty good life. It's just that, you know, you're going to have to change up the mind state of, I have my workers work at my farm while I'm in Bali. That's, yeah, I think that's, that, that, that's the change is that yeah. the, the, all the Humboldt County had a, had a lifestyle that was like second to none for blue collar people. Because I mean, at one point Humboldt was producing 80% of the nation's weed. And so when you distribute that amount of money, Humboldt, you know, we figured BOE a couple of years back was looking at eight to 10, 10 billion out of Humboldt. When you distribute that amount of money among, you know, 150,000 people, yeah. it's a little different lifestyle. Yep. And so I think that those are the things that It'll are- ruin you, huh, I, oh. Hey, Saddam Hussein, Iraq did 10 billion there. What was what he was allowed to make to run Iraq before we took him out? Oh, shit. So we were seven, spending $10 billion here is, they had a military- yeah, right. Right. They're trying to take over part of the country that all that kind of money was spent in that's this little county. That's an yeah. interesting perspective. That's for sure. So, you know, that's, that's, that's some of the issues is like yeah. trying to be able to change all that money. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, you know, like for me, I've been in, I've been in cannabis like for me, I'll be, I'm maybe 52 coming up. So I got 40, 41 years of actually being involved in the industry. And I think that over the course of your lifetime, you kind of normalize. So a lot of the things that motivated you when you were younger, a uh, lifestyle, changes and what you want is you want like stability and you want quality of lifestyle and that doesn't always mean a a flossy rig or some new shoes it means you know good Mm -hmm. friends Mm -hmm. a a stable family life like things that not we would call normal people people that were mainstream would be able to have for us that were in the from the drug culture that was something that was like a fantasy because any minute you could get busted and, and your whole world changes so I think with the, as we grew up, a lot of us stabilized. And I think that Southern Humboldt is really the older group of cultivators. You have a lot of people that have been, you know, second, third generation from the 60, 68, 69 back to land movement when all the people came up and took over all this uh, logged land and reclaimed it. And that actually built the cannabis industry. The development 
of what is and what will be became more normalized. But anybody that's younger, you know, as soon as you're able to have some success in life, you think it's a vertical line straight up. Right. You know, like, the paycheck's never going to Oh, end. yeah. It's going to get bigger. Yeah. You're, you're just going to be balling. And <laughs> and they're the ones that are having some trauma right now because they're like, they're crawling more than balling. Oh, I know, man. I don't know how many people I came across. And I love all my customers. And I would talk to the people, some of them that would... They'd show up. They'd like, hey, man, can I get a front on some soil? I'm like, sure, man. We'll put you on some soil. And, you know, they go get some soil. They grow. They come back. They're like, oh, I had a great year. Here's your payment. I just bought a brand new truck. <laughs> right? And it's next March. Like, oh, man, just got from Bali. I need a front on some soil. Right? And, like, this goes on for years. And it's like, you know, house, wife kids right more yeah. trips to bali right you're living on the the assumption that there's a never-ending flow right absolutely and, and at a level that's i mean people don't understand how much money was spent here because if you're making if everybody was averaging a couple hundred grand and spending a couple hundred grand i mean oh my god when average when you go to i used to go to the the rental place and the people who worked at the rental place that used to load your shit they had rolexes and so you, yeah, because I know that rental shop, you, everybody has to have a job <laughs> in order to be able to have a tax return. Right. So people would get jobs in town, but we're right. running these crazy operations. I mean, it was such a dichotomy of life. The, the, the up and down was insane. And, and a lot of that is going to have to get, you know, fit into a, a reasonable level. But when I, when I see the, a lot of the people that I've dealt with for years in terms of uh, clients, they're proactive as can be. And it, it makes me really happy to see it because I was really afraid that Humboldt would get decimated completely and we would lose this beautiful group of people that made this place so unique. Absolutely. You know, bold people, but with good hearts. Absolutely. The great thing about cannabis that I've seen here in Humboldt is this allowed people to pursue interests that they wouldn't have been able to pursue in any other way. Oh yeah. Right. Whether it was professional weightlifting, photography, you know, professional like rappers. hunter, rappers, mm -hmm. pro fishermen, pro golfers, pro surfers, like, yep. pro surfers, pro skaters, skateboarders, pro skateboarders. Yeah, everything. Like, Motor like motorcycle riders. Absolutely. Everything. Like you might be good enough to compete, but to like be in that realm, you had to be able to supply yourself with capital in a non-conventional manner. And be gone and travel and, and cannabis really allowed for that. And so for years. Art too. Yeah. Humboldt's got the art. highest artisan oh, population absolutely. in the country. In absolutely. the entire United States, there's more artisan businesses located in Humboldt County than anywhere else in the U.S. Humboldt County also has the highest degree of home ownership. So in, yeah. in eight, so in California, the majority of counties are only 20% privately owned, 80% publicly owned, meaning the government owns the rest of the land. Humboldt's the inverse. It's an 80-20. And so when you, you know, when you have a place where you have that level of investment, where most of the people own their own homes, it just creates an incredible environment where all of you have a stake in the hill. Yeah. You know, it's your hill. Yeah, it's all your course. hill. Yeah. When I mean, sure. I was doing a, I was doing some work with the Washington Post and they were trying to convince me that the cartel had moved into my mountain. And I'm laughing because I'm like me and four of the guys on the whole mountain. And I'm like, well, where's, where's the cartel? It's not, they're not in our yards. Yeah. Right. And they couldn't comprehend that, <laughs> that everything was privately owned until we broke out the, the data. And then they started to realize, I got you. Humboldt is unique in so many ways. Yeah. Southern Humboldt specifically, because yeah. it's a huge area oh, it's that's big. private. Yeah. Of land ownership and like above Highway 36, it's mostly public land. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so, like, not too far away from this house, that's private land. There's there's tons of native lands, native lands. Yeah, yep. Absolutely, that's northern humble. Yeah, but southern humble. It's private, huge land mass of, of, of mountains, savage seventy like, degree slope. Like it's like yeah. an accordion from the sky. That's yeah. why they could hide the weeds so well all these years. The <laughs> the Pacific Plate and the Punta Gorda Plate are hitting. Cape Mendocino, which is the westernmost point of the United States, and it's just cramming that shit. Literally, it's just rising right off the ocean. And like, if you're on my property, I got a valley that falls almost sheer, thirty two hundred feet behind me, and I mean, it goes down about fifteen hundred feet straight down, mm-hmm. and then it goes at about a seventy eighty degree angle. The rest of it, right? And I was laughing because you know this kind of place is just it's impossible to really explain unless you see it because most mountain ranges like this aren't covered in lumber no so this one's it's, it's a mountain range covered in lumber yeah big trees yeah right. should the old timers they buy the land clear cut it yeah. sell the wood sell the land go on to the next mm-hmm. well <laughs> yeah. shit everything That's how the cannabis farmers started they yeah. go yeah. in and buy the land that had been clear cut clear yeah. cut 20 years before yes yeah, it's, it's all of willow creek yep Right. All Southern Humboldt, all, all Humboldt, the whole right. back to land movement. <laughs> Cannabis was basically fueled from the, the 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 growth after the Vietnam War. They logged it all out. 68, the back to land has come in, pick up White Thorn, Bryceland, all these areas that would just basically look like nuclear bomb had gone off. Right. And they made a life out of it. And lo and behold, you know, cannabis cultivation flourishes. And then next thing you know, you know, we're here now. <laughs> oh, Humboldt. Ah. Well, hey, I think it's a great time to take a break. Hey. Let's uh, take a break. I got uh, Kevin and Joe. This is Chip. Real dirt. We're back. This is The Real Dirt. You can download this episode and others at therealdirt.com. And I've got uh, Kevin and Joe here. We're talking weed and Humboldt. You know, normally I have my guests do some feat of strength involving cannabis. Um, uh, but instead, uh, Kevin just rolled a joint over the break. Wait, what'd you roll up there, Kevin? Oh, this is good, too. This is from, uh, there's a guy local, uh, Carl Witt, owns Eden Farms. And Carl's a really good biodynamic farmer. Mm. And he took uh, the blood diamond OG cut from me and he hit it with the blueberry mail that he had mm-hmm. and they call it a tart OG. And so we're going to burn that, but it's just really, really uh, complex in its tone. And the, the thing with OG is it, it's a base for cannabis now almost where if you want yeah. heavy, powerful effect, Starts it's just that you, you get kind of bored with it though. And that's why they have to start throwing in some of these citrus splashes and some of these other tones, florals, so that, that mentally you lift up a little more before you settle into that heavy weight. I miss the old days of skunk number one and Northern Lights and Oregon Big Bud and Salmon Creek Big Bud. When yeah. It seemed like there's more strains now, but it just seemed different back then compared to everything now. So heavily guarded too. Right. And there was just a few people doing it. Right. That you just felt so special. But, <laughs> you know, man, some of those old strains are, strains are still great, but it, well, it's all pushed by the market popularity, though. It, it is. It is. Right? But the problem is that there's a there's a huge disconnect on this one topic. And this is the one where technology didn't move quick enough for reality. And so someone like me who was building operations all over California when I was doing what I used to do before I got into medical work. Nobody had the balls to run cannabis that was loud. 
So everybody wants loud pot now, right. but boo, they didn't want it. They, they didn't want it then. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so mm-hmm. what we did was we searched out through breeding projects and and just phenol hunts, looking for stuff that would would sell to the market but have low detectable odor, very low monoterpene signature. So high sesquiterpene, really good in the mouth, but very low in the nose, so low monos. Charcoal filtration hadn't come out, and so. The market usually determines what's taking place, but that's not the case with old strains. The case is that it, the technology wasn't present to allow it to be cultivated. So we've started removing some of these extra loud, highly recognized varietals from the market and from the system. And now the chase is on to resurrect those because what we have now is a very homogenized terp profile in most of the stuff we use. We use a lot of the common genetics and share it amongst each other. And we have these little subtle differences, but it's like saying you're comparing me white to someone white from Minnesota. Like, you know, I mean, I'm pretty white cause I'm in New England, but the guy from Minnesota is pretty white too. So like, what's the difference between the two of us? Not, not much. That's a problem when it comes to cannabis because it was those differences that were selected from the populations initially for their effects and quality and tones. And so For me, I'm trying to go and dig up these populations of plants that were tossed so that you could not get caught growing them. Right. And so the market didn't determine that it didn't want it. It's just the market was so hungry. You could, I I remember when Red Dog used to sell. Red Dog was a strain that, you you guys remember Red Red Dog. Dog. The Red Dog. Red Dog, man. I don't want none of that. Yeah, it was a huge giant green flower covered in red hair. It didn't get you high. It it was the size of a pineapple, but it was selling for $4,700, right? No, man, it's not Red Dog. <laughs> and so got some red hairs. I picked it early. Exactly. Right. We timed it right. Those are magenta here, it's not red. And that's really the deal with it is a lot of that stuff from the past is stuff that I'm trying to dig up and, and I'm searching the earth for it because a lot of the stuff from that time period went over to Europe, went over to other countries and started the foundations for what they work in. And because their situations weren't so restrictive, they didn't have to worry about it so much. So it's, it's odd, but like, if you want to get into stock from the eighties, early nineties, you got to go basically to Spain and get into where the, the, the Europeans moved into Spain production, Swiss production. And, and that's where you can still get into some of the cultivars that have been held that have been used to do breeding projects. But for us here, you know, like the old Salmon Creek, big bud, that was a phenomenal cultivar. And if you put it on the table right now, it would just absolutely sell because it was fantastic quality cannabis, but it had a production potential that was like second to none. Oh my God. Well, actually someone was, do you know, are you familiar with the upgrade? Yes. Yes. Someone dropped. That was the perp. That was, uh, that was the Mendo. Yeah. I remember when. The Salmon Creek Big Bud. Yes. Yes. I remember when I first got to smoke it from you. Yeah. And it was, it had those beautiful, had the beautiful perp tone in it, which. Somebody just dropped some off here. Oh, nice. Nice. I I, I just smoked the last of it or I'd show it to you. (laughs) (laughs) The upgrade. Yeah. 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 But it was definitely an upgrade of Salmon Creek Big Bud. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, fire fire it up, man. Yeah. Yeah. You got a lighter? Lighter? Yeah. God, dude, we have got, I mean, I swear to right. God, it's a running joke, but we can never remember to get the lighter in this here. Right there. Oh, oh here it is. Yeah, you here got it. One. Is. Yeah. Here, there. There we go. And an Astra? Oh, there. We got an Astra. Okay, we got go. it all. We got it all. So, Kevin is most notably known for uh, his work with Wonderland Nursery, and we've kind of just started to touch on this, on strains. You really did pioneer the organic IPM for a nursery environment years and years ago you've got so many strains collected so many strains let's talk about wonderland nursery what wonderland was was we were the first full walk-in nursery 
in America where you could walk into the nursery and purchase plants and leave because I had a dispensary. I got put into some weird situation when I picked up that facility that I couldn't sell cannabis. I could sell concentrate and clones, but not cannabis because at that time, Humboldt said you could only get, Humboldt County said you could only get uh, cannabis from permitted farms. Well, they haven't permitted a farm in nine years at that point. So when I started that shop, they said, hey, you're, you're a lunatic because you're going to fail. And I said, no, no, no. I'm going to set it up to where it's a, a full walk-in nursery so that it allows customers to come in and actually figure out what it is they're trying to do genetically. Most people don't understand that the plants match circumstances and markets and conditions. And so what we tried to do is create a bank of cultivars that represent success in the market and for the grower. So that's basically the Venn diagram I'm, I'm looking for. So did you realize this or did it develop because the marketplace asked for it? No, it's that what what it was was I was I was I was career. You could train sell any clone in humble. You could, you could, right? but I was a career cultivator, right? And I was a career builder too, which means I used to create operations for people. Part of my success was that when I created your great. operation, Joe can only hit, hit it once. When I when I created the operation, the reason why I was able to dial you in was because I held my own nursery. So I was a nursery black market nursery guy forever, and people don't catch the significance. But it was like you know you're running ten twenty thousand plants back in the day. That was that's double life sentence. Yeah, and so for for guys like me, yeah, guys like me, we were basically lunatics as far as everyone else concerned because our plant numbers were so above and beyond norm that no one else could deal with it. But it was crucial for me to to have the library because as soon as I built an operation, I could then stock it with the varietals that had velocity in the market and would work for our circumstances. Once I get into medical cannabis, I just basically took that same concept that I had done for years and I just applied it to medical cannabis. Right. I don't know if you realize it, but you really were instrumental in driving the clone market in all of California. Yeah. Right. Because there was these name brand clones that people wanted at dispensaries, but like the commercial production area up here of Humboldt and Mendocino couldn't supply those clones because at the time it was this closely held mm-hmm. like thing. If you had OG Kush, you might've paid 5,000 bucks. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got a bunch right? of cuts like that. Right. Yeah. 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 And you were really able to facilitate Selling people like as many OG Kush, as many sour diesel, Mm -hmm. right, uh, cuttings as they needed. And that really helped manipulate the marketplace throughout California to drive clones, to drive clone names. What I I wanted to see a higher level period. When you're somebody who's into plants, like I'm into plants, you desire a quality cultivar to be released into the market. And what I realized was that the number of people that I was dealing with that I wasn't trying to cut them out of the loop of being successful because they really weren't our competition when you really get down to it. The competition was going to come in the future. What I wanted to see was more of a overall lifting of a tide where many people did well. And I realized that if I provided out really sifted genes, things that were very valuable and had an ability to work, and I provided them at a reasonable, normal price, and I made it to that degree, then it started to create how people should operate in my mind about a normality. And so some people thought I was a heretic for what I was doing, but really what it was, was it was trying to drive. Don't give that clone away. How it's going to ruin the market. It's going to destroy the whole world. The whole world. And, and for most people, they don't catch it. But like when I was young, I got, I got busted in 83 and I got dragged out of high school in handcuffs and caught, I spent 11th grade in a, uh, training school, right? So when I get out of training school, I go in the military because my family my, was organized crime. My whole neighborhood is about to go down. 
And I knew that there was no future for me. So I said, I'm going to the military. Well, I became a salvage diver. But when I wasn't doing dive salvage, I was doing drug interdiction with the DEA and the DOJ because they would loan me out. You're in the military, you do what you're told. And they would send me on these missions where I would get flown out in helicopters and dropped out of helicopters in the middle of the ocean on dope. And I got to see 120 tons of weed at a time. So I started seeing billions of dollars of drugs and I had already caught a case and done time. And now I'm on boats full of it. And so I realized that when you're dealing with billions of dollars of cannabis in a single package, none of us make a damn impact on this at all. Yeah. So as much as, as much as you think you're important, right? Until you see a billion dollars in person, you are not that important. That's what you know at that moment. And I realized, whoa. So I've always had a global picture of cannabis different than a local picture because of that experience. And I wanted it to happen. And, and, and I, I don't regret any of it because like, there's a tremendous number of seed companies that I was able to provide foundation genes for. There was a tremendous number of people who got access to things that absolutely changed the quality of their life and their direction because with the right genetics, you have a market. And that was really the desire the whole time. And I mean, I love doing business, but I like being involved in the development of cannabis. And part of it is to get high quality genes put into the hands of people so that they can all elevate the gene lines themselves. And eventually what you have is an overall higher level. I benefit from this because the people that I've assisted for all these decades, so many of them have done so well that they're how I receive my new genetics. They work on projects. They let me know how they're working with problems. They let us see the, the, what's, what's taking place. And then what we, what we did you know, with the, the organic end of it was we started really trying to work on an organic model at the shop to say, look, this is what's, gonna, what's regulation going to be. And almost everybody I know is, is really secretly squirting stuff on the plants in the back room. And what we, we didn't, didn't I know I sell it all, dude. Yeah. You know, and so I see, I see people. So we didn't, we, we wanted to learn and, and we, we needed to understand and it's a process. It's just like when you start to run, I have a couple of stores, uh, you know, dispensary. So when you, when you start to run a dispensary, it's the same thing. You, you have to change how you operate so that you can learn the new model. Otherwise you're not going to do a good job. And so what we did is we started trying to understand how does one work with this? And oh my God, it's a nightmare to work with some of these situations because you don't have the ability to control all the aspects, especially here in Humboldt, the way the permitting systems are working. So you end up working with these weird, funky buildings that you can't remodel or fix until the future occurs. And you're trying to work on highly controlled programs. And so you end up kind of muddling through some of it, but really what you're doing is you're actually learning the nuts and bolts of it on how to do it. There is a huge learning curve in anything technical. And people think, you know, you just switch, snip your fingers and, you know, you're suddenly intelligent. And it's not, it's really about application. And so driving forward with sharing the genetics and then trying to understand how to work with organic pest control in these situations that are not optimal. When people have a, a reference point, it's of, of something that's typically not achievable in an organic model. Right. And so you're having to get people to understand, look, this is what it really looks like. If you go to a nursery and you don't see any stuff, that's because they're able to use anything they want on it. Right. So when you go get your tomatoes, yeah, I know they're organic. You got organic starts coming from small farmers, but they're not running them year round. They run them on a cycle and they wipe it out. When you're trying to run year round operations, there is a degree of difficulty to it that requires an infrastructure mechanism to assist. And so all these things all come with time. And we knew we wouldn't have some of the infrastructure, but we could practice the skills and we could work on the the technique. And then we figured that we would just share our success and our failure because otherwise all the people around you aren't going to learn. So some people throwing rocks at you for your stumbles and some people are praising you like you're genius for your triumphs. But ultimately, you're just trying to drive an industry forward because it's where I've existed my whole life. Yeah. 
How many strains you guys got over there? I mean, I mean, I've had I've had thousands and thousands run through my fingers, but I basically only hold probably maybe forty or fifty total at all in plant form. And then I have a, an ocean of them crossed into stock so I can preserve genetic material. Right. So I, I'm a breeder, but I'm, I'm more of a preservation breeder. So I'm, I'm laying pollen all the time, but it's just, it's to hold stock so that I don't have to hold it in clonal form. And I probably only run maybe nine varieties for the commercial lines because that basically covers everything that's trendy at the moment. And what I do is I, Hold things that reflect some specifics, meaning different directions of your business. So for concentrate makers, we have things that have excess, you know, good extract amount in yield and in signature. And if it's flower growers, I specialize in stuff that has a high fungal resistance so that you don't have to use any buffers. Even though I love compost tea right now, it's dangerous to use it with the fungals, just like enzymatics. They work really well. But if you're going to spray yeast all over your plant and then fail a yeast count, it doesn't make any sense. And so what I do is I go about it from a cultivar perspective. So I go through huge populations of plants, sifting out cultivars that will work for a market. I don't give a shit what the name of it is. If, if it's the right quality and it works for the farmer, it'll make it to the table. It'll sell. That's true. And so maybe nine on the rotation for the commercial where you can come in and get large quantities. And then... I hold a ton of different varietals and some different males and stuff that breeders can come in and access off of me. People that know me can come in and get slices from. So if you want a solid male that I sifted that just throws out some fire, I'll I'll hook you up with one. Because the bottom line is, you know, what people don't catch is that in our mind, everybody's cannabis, but really everybody's secret cannabis. And the world is really highly judgmental. When I was in this incredibly public scope, it was by being kind and sharing and not acting like a dick. (laughs) <laughs> that a lot, I'm serious, man. They let the mainstream not want to crucify me because I mean, fuck, I was somebody that was just in the highlight that was ridiculous. Even though I don't see myself as the the representative of the industry, when you're in the news as much as I am, you are the representative of the industry. And I realized that. And I said, I don't want to screw this up. And so, so much of it is, is by trying to share the stuff, just like the CBD genes, you know, all the, all the ACDC that came out of the Humble Patient Resource Center sift that was with Courtney. Yeah. So Dreddy Aaron. I see that everywhere now. Yeah. So, it up. Yeah. Dreddy Aaron sifts it <laughs> and then he hooks it up with me and then I released it into the public. And so we, I released ACDC into the world. Dreddy Aaron's the one who sources it. And that cut has been, it, it's changed, it changed the whole world. And, and Aaron and I knew that if we, because no one else, they all thought we were retards to do what we did, which was to release it. They were like, you must be stupid because this is something that could be a monopoly. And we realized, though, that if you just did the right thing here, you would get the mainstream public to suddenly understand cannabis in a way no one ever had because it's with necessity that validity occurs. And I had some ACDC the other day. I had a migraine. and It's real. It, dude, it's totally real. One puff. And yeah. the migraine pretty much subsided. Yeah, no, it's, it's right with mm-hmm. one puff. And like, you know, I've used CBD, I have CBD, but and every time I use it, you know, I get a, a different level of understanding for it. But specifically, like smoking that whole plant medicine, one puff, and it, it just the migraine just went away. And it, it allows people right. to get benefit. And then all of a sudden they start to realize, you know, we, we did we did it at the shop. I gave away 110,000 CBD clones. The largest C, I don't know if anybody ever did that ever, but I mean, it's, it's documented. I got it on paper, 
we gave away about 27,000 a year free CBD clones because we couldn't figure out really how to charge people that needed the medicine at that level. I'm running commercial clone operation. I'm feeding commercial, I call them rec operators. And so the rec operators basically subsidized the medical and we just didn't take the profit. We just gave the clones away and didn't, and, and so we lost the money on the sale. But what we were able to do was we were able to get, you know, 27,000 CBD clones a year into the hands of the veterans groups, just rivers of elderly. And then we put on educational programs to teach them how to cultivate it. And then we put them in touch with laboratories and distillation and processing. So they would be able to turn it into a product for them. And what it did was it educated, you know, God, I don't know how many, but enough to where no matter whatever occurs, the education of how to use medical cannabis is now there. And so you got a bunch of guys that are career hustlers that got into the medical situation and were able to do some really interesting stuff because you understand ultimately that releasing high quality genetic material into the world is important. And when you're dumbing down the picture, so you shine, ultimately you dumb down the whole picture and you don't shine at all. And so, that, I mean, I got that's my view on it historically. And, sure. I, and, and I, I still see it that way. So you can access a tremendous amount of stuff. I mean, cuts, when the Larry cut was five grand, I was still pushing it at regular price. Same thing. I was the first guy to move the cookie in Humboldt. All of these things that we got our hands on first, we didn't tax people on in terms of exclusivity. What mm-hmm. we did was we fed the market at the right level, meaning fair prices, so that it now could actually become a market. And that's what it became. Totally. Yes. And that's what we wanted to see was a market that people could get into, that could function. Guys like me that were career from the game, we operate different. So the, the world's different for us. But the, I saw the changes coming. I mean, I, I've been talking about this forever. Cannabis was going to be here right where it is now. And I've been saying this forever. That it will be just like it is now, regulated and then soon assimilated. And for us, it was to try to get as much success as a culture possible before that happened. And for me, if you're the only one who survived, you failed. On a desert island alone with all the ganja you want. Kind of sucks. Huh? Yeah, so that's Wilson. You got the <laughs> yeah, you got the goddamn yeah, ball, you know. Oh, yeah, you, oh, yeah, yeah. Like he wasn't. He wasn't calling it Sheila. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Er, early on, I remember somebody saying something like that. Was like, "Why are you giving all this stuff away to all these people?" And his response was like, "Being rich, no fun alone, man. I want everybody to grow this shit." Truth, you know. It's it's success. <laughs> when that's that's what made Humble so banging was that when every time yeah. you went out, you were all arguing over who was going to buy the food. Mm-hmm. I all mean, the good companies here shared everything. When you work for Kevy, share the information. Most people won't, they won't absolutely. listen to you anyways. Humboldt's when the I, most open place for the information. When I work for Shouse in Humble Hydroponics, when Shouse ran Humble Hydroponics, he mm-hmm. taught us the same thing. Share every everything. information you learn. Yeah. Give everything you can at every meeting. Yeah, I know that song, bitch. She's got some special information he keeps back though oh yeah he's, he's a bright boy but you know but like we 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 all hold back little pieces because ultimately no, important well, survival you, yeah but it, it's it it's it's not so much that you're holding it back it's just that like my tool it, i try to tell people if you got a toolbox and it's the size of a roll away and a snap on and you're an f1 racer well there's a lot of goddamn tools in the box so it's kind of hard to remember how many you got and it's hard to remember to share all of them Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm holding them back. It's just that there's no way I could give you 41 years of hustle in, a, in an afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just doesn't work like that. And so, you know. No, that's one of the things that makes, has always made Humboldt grow is that there were so many people here growing cannabis and people have been doing it for such a long time. And like everybody has these magic and these ideas on how they want to produce their cannabis because they've dreamed it up some way. And, and here 
you hear people say stuff like people said this type of thing to me. <laughs> that looks like something I did in seventh grade, you know. And it, so, you the, know? <laughs> the, small, the small community of Humboldt has made it what's made it so important. It's such a small group of people, and everyone had to get along. And we weren't really police, so if someone didn't deserve to be here, the community policed them out of the place. Right. Yeah, you right. know, so it's the, the close community of this town has made it so. I mean, I moved here when I was 19. I bought my first trade clones from Kevin when I was 20 years old in 1997. Train wreck. <laughs> Train wreck. You know, for a, a townhouse girl that I was growing out of one room in the upstairs bedroom. Yeah, you would take it over that whole place. Every single, every single <laughs> house in the box. Yes. Lit, man. Right. It, it, was, it was soaring holes through the fucking walls. <laughs> one, one, one townhouse at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I great. It was type. great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Repair it all before you leave. Better than it was when you got yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's mostly right helpful. Thing. And then those people will always lease to you. Those are the people right now who have the buildings that are still leasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They would say they didn't like to see it happen. But the bottom line was, you know, you couldn't yeah. get a rental in Humboldt to save your life because everybody's it's money yeah and it wasn't like that for a long time in the 90s right there were rentals right there wasn't any activity here the indoor was exploding then. and then yep. and then late 90s it like as Pine soon, as, water as, soon as medical cannabis yep. came out as soon as you Boom. go buy clones at the dispensary like all the rentals are gone no well, more it rentals even, it, was that, it was even before that though really in humboldt what changed it was the the change in humboldt's production was when uh right around the turn like 2000 you, you still had like a draconian da and a draconian sheriff still like to come at heavy the they were heavy they were heavy yeah and then all of a sudden uh they got wiped out thank god remember the guy he was rubbing the, the pepper spray in the girl's eye they they had all the little protests julia chained up. yeah they julie was yeah, in a tree right. but they they had all these girls in, a, in the courthouse yeah, chained right. up right and they're all chanting and singing these little hippie ass songs and i love what they do i just trip out on it because i'm like oh you almost come from families with money because no one has free time to sit there and sit on the courthouse steps but they 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 do some incredible work <laughs> by keeping people from just basically cutting everything down in humble county so there's these hippie groups that they irritate everybody because they block off the roads and they do all this crazy shit but it draws an awareness that's needed yeah, but what happened was of, of, of environmental groups and yes. direct action groups for environmental that were battling the timber company yeah. directly. Yeah. That's, and so that's these girls are all, they're all in, they're all in the, sh- they're all in the county. They're at the, you know, county center and the sheriff decides, Hey, listen, you know, you, you, you girls aren't going to let go. They've of locked thing. themselves down with yep. pipes and, and well, they take pepper spray on, on swabs, you know, like a cotton swab and they grab their faces and pull their eyeball lids open and, and rub their eyeballs with the uh, pepper spray. I remember. Well, yeah, thing. but they're doing this on national TV and these girls are screaming like they're dying because basically they feel like they're dying and they can't get detached quick enough to even get to their face. So it's, it's basically torture session that's occurring. Well, anyways, that drove an awareness to the behavioral practices of the Humboldt DA and sheriff at that time. And there was a, a turnover. And what you had was the new DA said, listen, if you're not going over 99, I'm not really caring about it. Paul Gallegos. Bingo. And, yeah. and he began a, a reduction in penalties for cultivation in, within a range. And at that same time, you started to see uh, changes in perceptions of cannabis. The loggers started losing their jobs. They had to yep. find a new way to make money. PO, that's loggers, right. yep, PLs, because loggers right. go out in the early 2000s and they, they remember 207. They cannabis. They 207 they was they the, cannabis mm-hmm. until they didn't have a job. Yep. Until they, they decided. They knew the woods. 207 was when it finished for us here. It was basically US-wide was when 207 happened and the economy collapsed. What you had was everybody who had real estate suddenly became indoor growers. And that was really what affected the price more than anything because up to 207, the price was frozen at, at four grand across the board. Mm-hmm. And- just frozen, stable, like a flat rock. 
And then when, when 207, 208 hit, it took a dive here from, you know, four down to 21. So it went 19, 1900 buck drop, hundred bucks a month for 19 months. And what had occurred was the people who had these incredibly expensive mortgages now had real estate and they, they, they weren't going to get kicked out right away, but they couldn't afford it. And so they just said, Hey, I'm about to go bankrupt. I lost everything. My morality has changed now. Now I'll be a pot grower. Yeah, right. And we'll 9-11 helped with all of that. Oh, because yeah, huge. Shut the borders down. Yeah. That, that saved no us. Humble County would have went out of business. Nope. Remember back then it was a lot the more BC than American weed. And cheaper. BC weed and Mexican weed were here completely. And then they mm-hmm. shut those borders down. The prices went up higher. Mm-hmm. And then the now perp. the, now oh, the, yeah. Now the market's oversaturated. That was when the perp comes a train wreck. The perp. The perp. The perp. The perp was the perp. The perp in 9-11 to me saved Humboldt County because Humboldt County was getting buried alive from the first clones, I remember. I mean the first in-demand clones. Yeah, yeah. It was that's the that's the rapper started, the singer started talking about Well, you know what it was was it was the if no one understood what made it so special, but like people didn't catch the dispensaries had just really begun then. And so dope deals were still being done in the street through the window of a car. And so when you bought the perp, because it was even in ratios of color. So when you sold perp, it was a hundred perp or a 90, 10 or an 80, 20 or a 70, 30, meaning how much perp to green ratio. Because the perp was a distinct color and had a very distinct orange carroty looking hair. And it allowed you this incredible distinction. See, we used to bring these packs down to the bay and then I'd go hang out with the dudes in the hood that were moving it, right? Because I was from the hood. So I would go to the bay and hang in the hood because it was like being at home. And I would go and we would drive over and watch people flip the bags into cars and see it sold. And so I had them flip me in one in the window so I could see it sold in my own hand. And it was, I could see clearly how it shined in the light distinctly. And so really the perp branded itself in a very specific way visually, because we will even have in varieties that outproduced it, but we would call them pretendicas. And so the pretendic is the faux perp yeah. and it would allow didn't you, get you high. It didn't get you high, but it sold <laughs> fast. So great. It, it looked great, but it, it was, yeah, you know, this is, this is business, right? But we had these stunning perp cuts that just absolutely, it let you start to, it let me start to understand branded cannabis because when I sat in that car and, and saw why they bought it, it also flavors blunt wraps distinctly. And so the blunt was a preferred form of smoking at that time in these places. And this changed the flavor of the blunt dramatically and perp had a, had a, had a sesquiterpene that most people weren't used to meaning a, a heavy multi-bond terp that survives heat. And so at the end of the joint, end of the blunt, end of the bowl, end of the bond, whatever it had the flavor. And this, and this is, you know, the revolution of American weed at this point when perp started now people in Florida and New York. So they're basically converting over from, Canadian weed and Mexican weed to only American weed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah totally. Full. And, and an ex- right. that was the beginning of the explosion. And, it, and, and yeah, then the rappers, and, and the here rappers is where it was really coming from yes. at the time because this was the only commercial area. Oh yeah, we were grinding a right, The only like place you could go to hydro store and buy. If you weren't moving, lights, <laughs> if you weren't right? moving, per- you, you put the money in the register over 15, 20 days. Yeah, right. yeah. It depends which store. <laughs> this was the only place where every every hydro store had huge money counters. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you the know, banks. Absolutely. This is the only place. Right. You've been to pay your electricity bill and there's money counters everywhere. Yeah. And money counters <laughs> all over on McDonald's. But yeah, the perp, the perp, what the perp did though was unfortunately the perp, it affected even me too, because remember I'm, a, I'm somebody who's a librarian, right? I hold stock. Yeah, but then you couldn't sell in any of the rest I of the I could stuff. not the sell any of that shit. No. And, and so I had to start thinning down my and, bomb ops because yeah. when you start having, remember you're talking all these plans, we're talking, every, you know, it's just, it starts to become complex. 
And so, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish our listeners could see his face when he said that you had really identified how complex it is. And so you end up just thinning down to the stuff that you really like. I did a lot of preservation projects. We put a lot of the Afghani lines away. We had all the Mazaris, a lot of the Highlands. We did projects to put it into seed form because we knew we didn't want to get rid of it because it was too good. But when no one will buy it. You know, we know it's good, but you can't convince mm. people your opinion matters. Here's some perp legacy right oh, here. Nice. Purple punch from Royal Bloodline. You know those oh, yeah, bloodline. Yeah. Royal Bloodline. You know those. Oh, guys. that's rich. Yeah. It's and it, it says on there that it's greenhouse too. If you look at it, yeah. Yeah, it looks spiky. It's it's pretty nice looking. Totally. Sweet. You know what else yeah. yeah. Yeah, the perp the perp thinned out all the gene lines again. So like you know, for guys, like I said, guys like me, there's a lot of guys. I'm, I'm not, I'm not that unique here at all. You know, I'm, I'm not even from here. I'm just someone who loves living here and tried not to screw the people that lived here when I got here so that I could actually live here too. You know, <laughs> like live here, you live here. You brought something to community. Yeah, I tried. I tried to take it away. Yeah, I wasn't trying to steal anything from anybody. I didn't come here to grow pot. Actually, I was actually already a grower for, you know, shit, decades prior. I actually used to do lighthouse restoration. So I was restoring a lighthouse. And I came up to Humboldt to restore the Cape Mendocino lighthouse, the one that's existing in Shelter Cove now. So we we took that and modernized it. And then they flew the structure over to, to Shelter Cove. And my younger brother come out to live with me. And he was 12 years old and he was just wild. And I knew that we wouldn't do well in the Bay Area because uh, bad time for the Bay, bad time for a wild 12 year old. So I said, hey, maybe we'll go to Humboldt and try to live up here. And I never left. Mm-hmm. I got here when I was 25, you know, and I'm 52. So- it, it's been a, a a really nice trip because I didn't come here to try to take anything from the place. I just came here to to find a, a place to live with my brother. And he ended up having a couple kids here. I had a couple kids here. We built a beautiful life. And I like it here so much that I've tried so hard to like promote, assist, and help. I never tried to screw this place over because once you live here, you, it's almost like you're living in a dream. It's unique. People are nice to each other in ways you haven't seen because the population was small, but was funded. And the people who made the money were really mostly blue collar type people. And blue collar people are kinder than white collar people. Typically, when you have to work hard with sweat labor, you feel for other people differently than when you make it easier. It's just a, it's a, something I've just noticed. Yeah, it's the not, farmers are pioneers. They're, they're these different, guys, man. They're different people. These, rich inside. This, these people here who lived on these properties in a tent for 10 years, built a little cabin, the city came and fined them and made them pull their cabin down. Then they had to sue the city just to put a house on the property. They've been working for 10 or 15 years. These, these people here are pioneers. Yeah, they I mean, this place was Agreed. just nonstop harassment. You know, no, no one realized it. We talk about heli, but no one has ever seen helicopter enforcement like you saw in Humboldt. And, <laughs> and this, is, this, is, this is where they pioneered drones. I mean, oh, then, we've been telling people for years, the drones are flying this place like you wouldn't believe. It tells you you're tripping. But now yeah, you see now it flying. Come out, right. Now you're flying around all the goddamn things. Now you see it on picture. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has an iPhone. I don't know how. <laughs> never, they never flew me. They never flew me all year. And it's like, yeah, they And they did. They, they got drones drone. everywhere. Yeah, yeah and, and they got micro drones. I mean, back in the day, I don't do it anymore because I have a permitted farm, right? But before I got my farm permitted, I used to go down to the river bar in the morning at like five o'clock and wait for the, the copters to set up. And then I'd see which way they were jumping. So I would know to go to work or go home. Back in the that was really famous because they gave you all the helicopter routes. Yeah, yeah. And K-Mug was great. Flying, that's when K-Mug was at its eye. That was Civil Liberties yeah. Modern when Project, man. listen to K-Mug every morning. Yep, yep. The this trucks are going it. up the hill. This is 8.05. And today we have the uh, Civil Liberties Modern Project report. Today there's a convoy of white vehicles going down White Thorn Road. 
turning right? left at the mailbox. Yeah, right. <laughs> they seem to have gone past Kevin's farm. You know, <laughs> yeah. literally say shit like but this. But we right? would we would watch him assemble the cop to see helicopters right, don't like fly this. in like they think that you think helicopters fly in from someplace, but really they assemble them. They make these little tiny microcopters on the river bar. So these tractor trailer trucks open up the back. They we watch them through binoculars. I've been doing this for years. They pull them out of the truck. And they assemble the damn things and they're helicopters that are the size of a Toyota Tacoma. And yeah. and basically you're about the same size inside because the le- pilot's left arm is out the window and the passenger's right arm's out the window. And what they're doing- You can see these guys real- I'm close. watching them. Well, they're flying. We're, we're in the hills with them. And so, I mean, I'm watching them like they're watching us. And what they're doing is the the, the guy flying the copter is, is driving the copter and the guy in the passenger seat is flying a drone. And so the drones come in and can map and look and give them recon on the computer. And then the helicopter can follow the drone. And then once they map the whole area, they come in either later that day or they come in the next day with the big, with the big uh, nets and the full-size copters. And then they descend upon you on rope. And then recently, we've just been having them fly around on ropes where they just have contracted teams that aren't even cops. These guys aren't police. They're security people paid by the state or the county. And they're just hired as a service and, and they're armed, but they are not police. And they just drop out of the out of your yard. They cut all your shit down and then they rehook up with ropes and fly to the next farm. So you see guys flying all over the place. I mean, nuts. flying through your yard like it's nuts to be hiding from dudes that are flying on ropes in your yard. I've seen this. I know, I've, you, I've, I know I've you've heard this. of it. I, I heard a friend tell me about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I've seen it from a distance. Yeah. I've seen it from a distance. <laughs> years and years ago. That's for sure. Uh, but it's changing now. Eradication's changing now. So now it's so GPS now. It's not only GPS. Now they're sending you a letter saying from this GPS. Is com- complaint, compliance from, from Google. Google and, does the work yeah, for them. And you're getting a $10,000 a yeah. day fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what happened is Google, Google provided a service to the county where every two weeks the satellite flies what's my over. Name Skip? Bam. Oh, oh, oh shit. It. <laughs> Love it ourselves over So Google, Google. They're just passing the joint right back and forth. <laughs> every two weeks, they, they measure your, and they can do this any way they want, but every two weeks, they measure the county. And then what they do is they have it all on a computer program and it checks out each APN, which is, you know, your property. And then it measures any changeable difference from in two week <coughs> intervals. And then it gives a picture of it and then some information and then allows the county to take a look. And so when they did all their computer overlay, they figured, hey, Humboldt's got 10,000 farms. I think only like 2,000 of us came out and said, we're going to get permits. So there's 8,000 farms that said, no, I'm not. You're not going to catch me. Who are you going to? How are you going to find me? Well, they, they ain't, fi- ain't caught me yet. They felt they caught them now. And so they got you on satellite. And what they're doing is they and they changed the laws. So you cease and desist used to be like 90 days, right? So they would tell you, look, if you don't respond in 90 days, you get a $10,000 a day fine for every single violation that we catch you with. And usually three or four minimum, right? So it goes up to like 40 grand a day. And that's civil. That's assessed. That's a tough one to fight. And so what Humboldt did was Humboldt said, 90 days is enough time to get a DEP in. So let's make it 10 days. And so now you have 10 days to respond. Ninety thousand are fine. 90, yeah, yeah. And so they, they now we're now we're going at it. And what you got like in Sacramento is uh, you know huge indoor raids because they're using the computer, they're using the, the smart meters to go after you because right. energy you spikes, energy spikes. And, and so little by little, they're going to sift through the state and wipe the black market out. And it, it's trippy because you know when you're in the white market, you want to have a fair competition, and black market doesn't allow it. But the problem is when all the people in a black market are your buddies that you love, they just didn't want to get permits. They're the last people you want to see trimmed. And so it's this, it's, it's crazy because the counties are asking the people to, they call it um, complaint driven. It means that 
if you rat out somebody, that's how we'll come chase them. Mm-hmm. But if we, if you don't rat them out, we won't chase them. And so you're in this no ratting type place. And so we're all looking at each other like, what do we do? How do we, how do we do this? Because the white, the black market guys are about to get drilled right out of existence and they're all your neighbors. Friends the, you've known for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what to do. And, and, and because none of us are sure like, Hey, what's the plan? Some of us that have white market stuff doesn't even mean we're going to survive necessarily. Every state that goes through these transitions goes through it, but nobody yeah. on earth, maybe, you know, Morocco, Colombia, those people that are Lebanon, they're dependent on cannabis to a degree that Humboldt is 80% of people in Humboldt County probably growing dope. If it, man, if you're not growing weed here, you work there? you're servicing yeah. the grow industry in some manner. You're either working for the guy or you're selling groceries to the guy growing weed or the guy working for the guy growing weed. Everyone's a, right? I'm good. Cause everyone's a mini <laughs> business in Humboldt. Everyone has a set of employees that depend on them and that, and you work for somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, it's a chain yeah. and then they work for somebody else. So the, all it's all connected. Yeah. It's like a hundred thousand like landscapers almost. Totally. Totally. Yes. It's, you know, cause it's that size, maybe bigger, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of like a lot of million dollar or, you know, $500,000 businesses. Oh yeah. Yeah. For a, a lot. And, and, and we're isolated. You know, people don't catch it that, you know, humble County, all you have to do is have, a good storm and we lose all fiber optic. We lose all communication. The highways closed down. I mean, talking the highways closed down. We get straight stuck here. Yeah. We, we, we call it free. Yeah. We're free. I'm both free. free. No way in, no way out. Yeah. You stuck in. Yeah, and you're so stuck it, 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 it let most of us, you know, work together in a, in a little different fashion. I mean, the humble, sometimes in Gobbleville still, you can stop in the middle of the street and talk to somebody and people drive around you and don't, don't scream at you. Yeah. You know, it still has a, a little, little small town feel. It's, it's busier, but there's still these little small town pieces that just made it really kind of neat for me to move here. Yeah. It's, it's still going to retain that. I know it's changing. Mm-hmm. It changed from logging industry and it survived. And sheep and, and gold. Yeah. So it was originally gold. And then you know, it, they started logging this place out 1850. You couldn't get the Humboldt except by boat until about 1860. Right. So 1860 boats coming in, pulling Redwood out. Then the great fire of San Francisco in early 1900s, they logged the living shit out of this place and snatched all the redwood one more time. Then it grows back. Then they go after the fur for the, the 1950s after World War II building trade. Then Maxim comes in, wipes out the whole place. Now we have lumber again. People don't catch it that like Humboldt County is really good for growing trees. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. Redwoods will, will come, come back, back. never because Lumbers. of the, the change in climactic situation. Yeah, and we don't have the absolutely. moisture anymore to hold that level of tree canopy. So redwoods are unique in the sense that as a as a plant, they don't have the vascular system, the They're, the yeah. pressure, the, the turgidity to drive liquid three hundred up. Oh yeah, you know on the on the property run right here, mm-hmm. I have fir and redwoods growing right together, which you know we're we're not too far from the coast here, totally right, and we are at elevation, but I'll literally have fir trees growing out of redwood stumps throughout the whole property here Mm -hmm. when i look at that i'm like wow yeah this has been going on for a minute you know that's a a 20 year old fir tree that's a 50 year old fir tree you know on the way here in a 500 year old stump in a 500 year old (laughs) yeah on the way here we're talking about trinidad when we moved here in the 90s you can see the ocean from everywhere in trinidad Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. 20 years you know 20 years is 40 year olds you can't see the ocean from anywhere in trinidad except when you're down at the pier in those houses right there it's changed. Like even the college when you come through Samoa, you can't see Humboldt State anymore. And that was during bad grow years. You know, you remember like when we like I was talking to some farmers. See, I, I try to I, I, I've been studying ag as a concept for a long time, just so that I could better understand cannabis in a bigger picture, because it's the same thing. And so 
when I was trying to understand what was going on with the water of California, I, I got a hold of some friends over in the Central Valley that have been farming for like 130 years. And they've kept water records for 130 years themselves. And he broke out a chart that was on this yellow piece of paper that unfolded on the table. And he showed me the cycle of California's water flow. And he was saying, hey, we're coming into water again a couple of years ago and bam, we're back. But what we had had was, you know, 20 years of decreasing water. Now we're going to have 20 mm-hmm. years increasing water. And so when people talk about Humboldt County's having water problems, California's having water problems, well, wait till they experience what's going to happen 20 years from now when these trees have gotten 20 years of water. I mean, if you, you got to see the, when, you, when you're logging and when you're cutting trees, you're looking at growth rings. In Humboldt County on certain species, you can measure the growth rings with your pinky. Mm-hmm. that's the space between each ring. I mean, I'm talking, you look at some rings on trees in some places, it looks like paper. Humboldt County has an exceptionally good environment for growing. And so we're going to constantly reproduce a tree climate. It's just changed as to what the trees are going to be. Cannabis. Yeah, we're not, you know, we'll see. Cannabis Cannabis will be in places, but if if it becomes commercialized, then Humboldt should really remain what it is, which is like, say, 10,000 to 40,000 square foot patches. Nothing really bigger than attic unless you're on some alluvial river bars. Some of the prime ag like over in uh, Hydesville has flats big enough. But Humboldt County is so goddamn steep that there really isn't that much flat ground. And the dirt really sucks. It's only good on the alluvial floodplains. It's fucking clay. Uh, and people talk about Humboldt County dirt. I'm like, it's just like when they tell me about- You see some Humboldt County farmers, they some hard son bitches, they dude. They got the muscles. They've been tough. digging in that hard fucking it's, ground. Yeah, it's shitty dirt. It's <laughs> the only soil in Humboldt that's good is along the Shively floodplains. And you want to know where the soil is best in Humboldt is if you go to the river and you find the huge cutouts. Oh, yeah, the where, floodplains. But they're, but they're unique because in Humboldt, they used to allow all the sawdust- to leave the sawmills once a year in this big flood out. And what it would do is it laid all this humus into the river bars. And that is what gives some of those floodplains that incredible rich loamy surface. Just like people don't catch it. The reason why you have such a tree load up here is because there was this in 1960, this was the number one salmon fishery in the world for coho. And so all these salmon are coming up river, miles up river and dying up in the hills fertilizing the entire watershed to a degree that's unique in America. Mm-hmm. And so with the change of the fish coming up, it's changed and they don't, they no longer dump, you know, lumber dust into the rivers. So the people who have some of those alluvial floodplain places on the, the eel that were catchers for that dust that released allows them to have some pretty damn oh, good yeah, soil. I never thought about it, but yeah. But premium, man. premium. Shively has been- Shively is, is legend for that. Is, is legendary for its produce, yep. that's for sure. So for us, the rest of us, we have to build our soil. We have to make mm-hmm. the real dirt. And that's the truth, man. We, we became pretty good at creating living soil mixtures, and there's a trillion different ways of doing it. Totally. And Humboldt County has got everybody and their brother. I mean, I got guys coming over to my nursery and they reach into my compost tea brewers with cups and drink the shit. And then they tell me that's a good compost tea. And I crack up because you wouldn't get me to put that in my mouth in at all. But yeah, yeah, you can do that. we're talking organic, Humboldt County organic people are so organic. They're literally drinking compost yeah, tea out of brewers and it trips me out. But no, that, it, yeah. that's a probiotic person. <laughs> your, your stomach biology is so strong. You can process compost tea. You're okay. Uh, that is a norm here. Humboldt is filled like with some water out of the creek. Same yeah, thing, same thing. Giratia water, right. but it's okay. Your system can take it. You can handle it. But right. that's, <laughs> this is an organic group, man. They're willing to live in the bush and build the soil because what Humboldt does have though is exceptional climate for cannabis production. And, and what climate for cannabis production really means is that Humboldt County is situated 
if you're looking at the sweet spot, you know, in Soham where we, we've done this production for so long, it's about 13, 14 miles off the coast, but you have a mountain range that separates you. So it gives you this buffer, but every night the temperature will drop about 50, 60 degrees from day. And so you'll get this blistering 14, 15% uh, humidity in the day, 112 degrees. And then at night, it'll jump up to 85% humidity and 50 degrees. And so it it allows the cannabis to really almost re-moisten and, and re-wet itself. So you don't, you, you end up having a, a very greasy, oily type of texture to it. So when I go inland further, it's a drier, harder, Colorado, drier, harder, Grass Valley, drier, harder, coastal, too mold prone, but Humboldt's a sweet spot for cannabis outside specifically, and though we can do anywhere, but if you're doing good outdoor cannabis, cannabis grown well in Southern Humboldt, it has a greasy, oily consistency to it that distinctly marks it as that. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted that as farm. I'm like, look, I don't give a shit what's going to happen. This is where good grass is grown, period. <laughs> and I know the that. best in the world. It's a sweet spot, it man. It's, it, it's the a, best growers in the world. I'll, I'll 100% say that. There, there's some we saw wizards. That 1%, that 1%, 10% market still comes from Humboldt mm-hmm. County. If we can hold on to that in the next 20 years and still put out the that 1%, that 10%, we should be fine. You know, 10% of 14 billion is, you know, 10 billion. <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. You know, said, yeah, for real, for real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the same economy. Yeah, it's the same economy. Yeah, it's only it's change. It's change. Don't don't be scared, my friends and listeners. It's only change. It's it good. It. Yeah, you have to. You, cost, well, you can't you can't hide from it. Profit. You know what I'm saying? You can't hide from it. No, no laborers like me. Now we just have real jobs. We work for corporations doing the same thing that we've done our entire lives. Sales. Mm-hmm. Sells, mm-hmm. sells. But a lot of us, though, you know I me, mean? like we, when you get past all the where my money's going, because I love this shit, because most people told me for years, you know, I'm not in for the money. And I always told them, then give me the fucking pop for free. And yeah, like, what are you yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah. What are you talking about? I said, all right, then you're in for the money. Just call it what it is. Right. And, <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm like, just be honest with yourself. I don't give a shit. I'm a trafficker. I was a grower. Now I'm, I'm trying to be a legitimate business person in cannabis, but I'm still just trying, trying to hold be, out a corporate job. But I'm still, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm a slave to the grind like the rest of us. School, making sure I can write these 30 page papers out. You know, yeah. yeah. Same drug. I do my homework every night too. And, and I, I still have to get a tutor once in a while because some of this stuff is so complicated that Holy Christ, I got seven teams of people that I've built around me to help me. If I didn't have the cats I'm working with, I'd be dead. The game is tough, man. Like I, I got the same lawyer since I got to Humboldt County. Like I, I still use him as my primary attorney, even though I have a group of attorneys out of the out of the the state that I use, Kendra Miller. So she handles all my state level stuff, but Will handles all my local for twenty two years. Like in the business we're in, man, you got to have these relationships with people that can help you understand the nuances and guide you through. It's like going to court on a case, thinking that because you watched a couple of crime TV shows, you're qualified. <laughs> you're in for a real lesson. And I think, you know, that's what has to happen here with us is that you got people that are absolutely phenomenal at what they do. They just need to be able to get people to work with to complete the package. I think the problem is you got a lot of copper baggers coming in and it makes it kind of confusing. Copper baggers mean predatory business practices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Predatory lenders, predatory consultants, partners, predatory consultants. Absolutely, man. Fish oil sales. Or, yeah, snake yeah, oil. Snake oil salesman. Fish oil is kind of the same thing, though. Yeah, yeah right, it is. Right. It depends snake on what it is. You know, it's going to do everything for you. It's a panacea yeah. of all things. Yeah. 
we've covered so much, but I feel like I got so many, many more questions. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to have to come down to Wonderland and have a, a part two. Dude, and, come down check it out because uh, I'll show you the new spot we're building. Yeah. I got a new facility we're putting in right now that is stunning. This is a lab, so it it it'll have micro prop lab in it. It's absolutely stunning, right? And that, and I'll still maintain the first one. I'll still maintain the original one because we love what it is. It's just that uh, it, it it's funny. We we wanted to do the remodel on this five years ago, right? But we we couldn't get a building permit to do any changes without the the permit for the for the facility. And we had a permit that was existing because we picked up an existing business, but. In a, in a real world, this would be simple, but in, in Humboldt yeah, County, it's not. Yeah. And so we never modified that facility because we haven't been able to. And so the new build out was easy to do because it was build as we go because it was permit. And so we'll take the facility we have now, the old buildings, and we'll figure out what we're going to do with it. And I think I might just get into seed production and not even for ourselves, really. What I realized from doing all this work with all these genetics guys for so long is that in order to, in order to run a nursery or do, do seed production, you have to have a nursery license. And nursery license means commercial real estate, not uh, on your farm. Now, you can have your own nursery on your farm to fulfill your needs, but you can't sell that product outside your farm through track and trace. And that's just basically due to uh, vehicle traffic. And so a lot of the seed companies that I've been dealing with for years, which I, I think are just, they're, they're brilliant guys, man. They are, the, they are the, the lunatics in the game because they chase their own direction specifically. They, they absolutely turn their back on other people's views and chase what they believe is correct because they trust themselves in that direction. They take us into the genetic packages. All people do is gather the work of people who hunt it and, and build it. And then you take it and use it. Well, all these guys are going to disappear in a minute if they don't get some kind of support. And I realized that if I had an ability to put a nursery op together and then work as a producer of their genetics and then catalog it so we could figure out what material they wanted to produce for commercial level. And then that's what we would produce. And then my guys would produce the stock they would be able to license it. They'd own the genetics. We already have good relationships. Oh, so I've, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talked to a bunch of these, and they, these are well-known companies because a lot of them here in Humboldt and in, in this area are really they don't they don't have the ability, man, to see California wide. So if you're a small breeder and you don't have access to commercial nursery operations, you're really not a small breeder in a legal sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And so what we figured is, hey, maybe we could work on something where we could utilize this facility to work in that capacity. And allow individuals who were able to, they already have existing brands, they are already known, you would be able to come and work with us and then we'd be able to actually produce whatever line you wanted us to produce and it would all be under your control. It's just that it would be us doing the work so it was simplified. I don't want to create like, you know, 20 guys yeah. come in and pollinate. Just like the rest of the world. Like you got an idea, yeah. you go and get somebody to, to help you package it, help you develop it, help Ex- you manufacture Exactly, it. because yeah. otherwise they're all going to go away. Yeah, that's how everything works. Yeah, you right? got to share the tools. And I just figured, hey, you know what? It's it's the the new facility that I have is 10 times the size of my new is the one I have now. So I have 10 times the capacity at my new facility than I did at the one existing. So my new facility is not small by any means. And I don't need to run multiple facilities. So I, I'm trying to understand what to do with the facilities. And a lot of it is to figure out how do you, how do you work on all the genetic angles and, and, and still continue to develop and push. What, People, what they do is they get a hold of something and then they run with it like it's theirs and they forget that at some point the market will get tired. And all people do is they take things that are hot and combine them. But people who are understanding of, the, of uh, creation don't take stuff that's 
and do it that way. They actually take things and create new things, new directions, new concepts, and get people to go, wow, that is radically different. And then you have a massive paradigm shift to what's possible. Those creatives in the genetic world are the seed guys. And it's it's not the growers who are, are the creatives in that. They're the the, the growers are more re, we're reproducers. We follow we're like chefs and cooks. That's why there's so many chefs and cooks in cannabis right now, because it's a recipe, it's process. My mom was a process engineer. So you, it's process. You do something, but seed work, genetic packaging in terms of what are you thinking about? What are you looking for in flavor profiles, chemotypes, highs, directions? That's all imagination. And, and those people cannot be driven out or what we'll do is we'll actually dumb down cannabis. So, I mean, people got this misconception that when marker-assisted technology comes in, they're suddenly going to just be able to do what they want. They don't know what they're looking for. And I'm, I'm working with guys from Syng- a guy from Syngenta. So he's a 40, like 40 years with Syngenta. He's a brilliant guy. He and I are trying to get together on a marker-assisted project because they don't know what to look for. They're not cannabis growers. So yeah, they can tell you the one that has this and that, but in terms of marketability and sales and desirability, no. <laughs> right, you right. Know, you you're, know you're, I mean? you're the, uh, 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 where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, yeah. So this, you know, for all of us that have been doing this a long time, we're still highly valid. So it isn't like the, the big guys are going to come in tomorrow and take you out. No, they're going to slowly move into control. And then when they do, they'll have control. And for us, you know, it's, it's trying to, I mean, in a perfect world, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see humble farmers be able to have, you know, their own individual products that really do define you where we don't mm-hmm. share clones, not because it's not, we don't want to share it, but because basically we're operating, say like a Bordeaux model, we're running different grape, we're running different production methodologies. It, champagne model will work for a lot of farmers where you're running a common production methodology for different cultivars so that producers can gather from anybody and make the blend. What makes champagne different is that the house, the individual who does the actual processing of the product is the skill set. Farmers provide a quality product. They get paid. The house gets paid. In Burgundy, the farmer gets paid because of the Appalachian differences, the very specific little characteristics Mm -hmm. of all these neat little soil varietal mm-hmm. changes. So it magnifies flavors and tones and grapes that you choose. And it allows you an incredible amount of flexibility. Those two models will both work in Humboldt, but for different people, people that are highly branded can operate in either sphere. But if you're not, you're going to have to go under a more cooperative, you know, coffee chocolate model, which is really like champagne. Yeah, absolutely. Great analogy, man. Great. Yeah. There's so much going on here in Humboldt. There's this, it's, it's like a state unto itself. People don't understand that. It's like, well, I mean, the Humboldt nation. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's about, like being a state into itself. Because what nobody sees, you're driving down the street, right? Everybody goes, you know, nobody lives here. Well, that's because you-, you <laughs> That's because everybody's you, like- I live, I live right in the very middle of, of the largest production watershed in America. So Salmon Creek, I, I, I wake up and look at Salmon Creek and I have Miranda behind me, right? So Miranda and Salmon Creek are the largest concentration of black market farms and white market farms in Humboldt which means in California, which means in the United States. This is true. And so when you look at these two mountains, right, you can't see if someone goes, I don't see any farms. There's no farms up there. And I'm laughing. Mm. I'm doing it's a mountain. Smell it. Yeah. yeah, It's in the air. (laughs) (laughs) You can smell it. It's wifting through the valleys. (laughs) And so, you know, that one production watershed is cracking out a couple billion dollars by itself. Yeah, yeah, just one little small, one one watershed. Things. I mean, for real, one major speeding the nation. It yeah, really it is. was at that time. Humble County would really benefit from Schedule One changing because then we could market ourselves not in California, which we've already been doing for. 
30, 40, 50 years, but yeah. in the entire country. Yeah, and, and, and world even. And oh, world. yeah, globally for sure. Because yeah. people, the, the, Humboldt has a good name and, and, and it has a name that people don't catch it. But like I travel all over the world, both for, you know, recreation and for business. So I, I speak internationally and, and no matter where I go, hanging out anywhere when someone, and they just, and I'm not, I'm not a loud weed guy. I'm not like puffing weed in the streets. I don't have reefer hats. I'm not wearing, you know, pot sunglasses. I'm just a regular <laughs> dude. Right. And so when I bump into somebody at the freaking coffee shop or a brew house or something and they go, Hey, where you from? I go California. And they always go, Whoa, where? And I go Humboldt. And they always put their hands to their mouth and start puffing pot. If they know they're like, <laughs> people, I'm telling you everybody, they all, even old people, I'm looking at them and I'm laughing and I'm like, my God, what a reaction. Like, that's just so Mm-hmm. Well, I was in my early twenties. We went to Australia. My buddy wore a Humboldt State shirt, and we met some Californians out there. They bought us our liquor for the entire six weeks. We six weeks we were there, just, just so they'd have a connect when they got back. They had Humble T-shirt. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were the hoping they'd know you when you returned. They ran these party cruises that went out through multiple bars and ships, mm-hmm. and we would just float with them, and they would just buy our liquor. <laughs> the good old days. So, Kevin, if you could give a suggestion to the the Humboldt County farmer out there or the California farmer or the farmer in any state going legal now, like if you could give some sort one, of one advice, tip. Oh, one man. little tip, one little piece of advice, like what's the best thing that they could do? You know, yeah, for all the farmers, what they what they need to understand is margin. And, and that is something that has not been driven into cannabis farmers, real farmers are working off of a tight margin, meaning the difference between how much they spend and how much they really make. And that percentage in cannabis was, you know, shit, a couple hundred, right? So let's, let's give it some reality here. The, the number one business in the world is a Saudi Arabian oil company, right? They're making like 28% profit, right? That's like the most balling out of control. When you think of balling out of control Arabs and, and controlling wealth, we're just that's 28% margin, right? That, that, that's, how, that's, the, that's what they're pulling on that. I think the drug companies are a little bit less than at 25, 26. Everybody else is Walmart's on a single percent, one. Now they're the biggest company in the world, but they work off of making a penny off every dollar because they're making you know $20 billion. So it's easy to make a lot of pennies when you're making 20 billion. Margin. Cannabis farmers have been undereducated on efficiency. And so they don't quite catch the fact that what a competitive pound really is worth. And like right now, you know, spot price on Colorado pounds, legal, legal spots, 1100. So it was 1800 four and a half months ago. It's 1100 right now. So that's a legal pound. I mean, if I have a license to, to purchase from that, that, that buyer in Colorado, I could purchase it and I'd pay 1100 out the door for it. That means, you know, some of the other numbers like efficiency, you're talking uh, 24 pounds of light per year is a number now being used in terms of uh, production capacity, meaning that 1000 watts of light should give me four pounds per light six times in a cycle in some of these new computer control rooms. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the new standards. And so when people are getting into what they're doing, they're, they're making assumptions based off of pound prices that existed in the past. They're, 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 they're looking at growing cannabis in this incredibly expensive methodology. We're like, let me, let me use all these. What you got to do is take a look at farmers and try to understand how do you trim it back as much as possible without cutting back quality. And that's the skill. And I think that that's what the farmers have to work on is trying to understand how do we do this. And that's why it was funny, but to me, organics work so well for this, because ultimately if one can get a living soil, the cost, to, and especially if you can build it for a couple of years, the long term on it's really cheap. Yeah. And, and for cannabis farmers that have their own property, they can, it's the same thing, like, you know, single season. People say, oh my God, they go, Kev, why'd you do your farm single season? I said, because I'm in and I'm out and I'm done. And I made what I made and that's good. 
I don't want to have to work year round on expensive infrastructure on my farm itself. Mm-hmm. And nursery is a different story. But for me as a farmer, I took a look at it and I said, listen, if I don't use any supplement, I just run straight uh, organic bottom end. I produce uh, a quality product that I then harvest at the end of the season. I'm done. I don't run complicated depth cycles. I make it so that the work is minimal. We make it to where it's efficient as possible so that I know that there's a profit on that job. Absolutely. And I think that's what the farmers have to see. The farmers, if you were a cannabis, it's almost like the people that are coming in now, they may not have much cannabis cultivation skill, but holy shit, they got accounting teams that are impressive. Yeah. Impressive accountants. I mean, very accurate. And I work with a bunch of these teams in other projects and I'm amazed, man. I'm like, whoa. And just recently I've heard people talk about a price per gram. Yes. You know, how much, what's your cost price per gram? Cost of production. Yeah. And if you're not on point, man, same thing we're doing cost per clone, cost per this, how much, how much, how much, because really what's taking place is when I went over to Berlin, I went over to Berlin to speak and I I'm, I'm hanging out with all these cats in Belgium, you know, they're building in Belgium, you know, uh, half a million square foot, uh, greenhouse operations with molecular biology labs below them. You know, we're on a medical level. Germany's bear, bear, bears, the largest drug company in the world. They're running the medical program there. So, you know, you have this incredible shift and I went over there to speak and when I'm there, I meet all the, the, the stock brokers and I couldn't believe the investment teams that were at this, the all American, all American investment teams. And what it was, was the stock market is uh, a bear market. It's kicking people, it's biting them. And so they're all running into cannabis to do the work, but it let me hang out with, you know, a hundred different type of, uh, I want to call them, you know, commodity managers where they, they grab a hold of licenses and stores and facilities and production and extraction all over the country. And they hold them as a holding and not one of these guys. I mean, these were all massive, powerful, wealthy dudes. Not one of them had a longer than a four year, five year plan. It was all about consolidation mm-hmm. and then a liquidation mm-hmm. when the next level of competitor came in. And it was blowing my mind that these guys were all having to cut out. And so my situation was, you know, and they said the same thing to me. They said, you know, you're a vertical guy, meaning you have operations that go all the way from, from the bottom to the top. But eventually you're going to have to capitulate and bend too. And I'm like, well, by that time I'll be in my sixties. And so I'll be cool with capitulating and bending. You know I mean? You can't run full time until you die. Right. right. But mm-hmm. it let me understand what was taking place. And it let me realize that a lot of the, the huge growth would be uh, almost dangerous if it wasn't a very well done because you're going to have to survive long enough, this highly competitive world until there is a true buyout. And I think for a lot of the smaller craft guys and stuff, what they want to do is don't, don't envy your friend who's got the, the commercial hoops because he's grinding it out. But the bottom line is if it's costing him 1200 for that pound and he's only selling it for an 11, he's not doing that well. He may have 2000 pounds, but he just lost $200,000. You on the other hand might only made $65,000, but that's a pretty good paycheck for someone who's just working on the land. Mm-hmm. So I think that the cannabis farm is you got to kind of reset what you're trying to do with your small farms and really understand the, the concept of what capacity and size is. I don't think people realize, they think anybody in California is big. You, you, it's, you, they're not. This, mm-hmm. and, and you know, this, this Ants sco- on an anthill. Yeah. Ants on an anthill. Yep. That's- and so we know that when this thing goes to wherever it goes. And so the point is that it, it, trying, to, trying to, to be competitive then means you'd be competitive now and like all products, all things, 
there's levels and there is no craft level. People don't catch that shit. There is no craft right now. Why? Because there's no comparison of commercial because commercial would be giving me a $400 indoor pound and craft would be $1,400. And yeah, there'd be a damn difference, but I'd be getting, I'd be getting $400 pounds. It would pass like straight up through the lab, out the door level. Most people would smoke it. When that comes, that will then be your left side of the road. That's commercial because it's not here yet. <laughs> and then craft will be the right side of the road. That'll be with exquisite, the, the handoff, the, the, the unique genetic material that isn't shared. Farms that spent time sifting, sorting, working. My shit. Yep. Yeah, with production my. methodologies. Yeah, everybody got their little private goodies. I mean, I even got private goodies myself. But it, it, it's because uh, we want to be able to have some division amongst others at some point. And I think that when that time comes, it, it would work like the wine model. The, the, you got to remember, you're in California, population. I mean, unless we have an earthquake that rips half the country right off the side here, you're going to have population moving up. And the, the weather changes have changed agriculture on the whole West Coast. You, you don't even have Zinfandel being produced really in Napa to the same degree. They can't get the high point Zins anymore. They, they, yeah, they had to it's shift It's all moving. Them. It's, it's all moving. moving. Yes. And so what you're seeing is that as, as we start to move the population base north because it can't go anywhere else and we start because you can't you shift it out too much easter in the deserts and the bottom line is yeah climate's coming population moving up high speed rails going in all this crap's coming in so they can get people to come into south and central california really like you know central is kind of like i would say san francisco isn't necessarily norcal it's like the doorway to norcal so Frisco up to NorCal and then, and then Frisco down to say uh, Santa Barbara. So would be central Cal and Santa Barbara to San Diego. SoCal. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, yeah. Okay. We'll call it at the break. Cause some people call it Ventura, but it's still SoCal. Yeah. Then that <laughs> if we break it up like that, then what, what you have is you have, you know, this incredible situation of people who have farms in the mountains that are stunning. If Napa could get people to go look at grapes when one goddamn vine looks like an X, if you can, I, if you can believe that people will tour the earth to see grapevines, then why wouldn't it be such a reach to believe they would come and look at cannabis farms? Oh, and no, I'd do it. Travel's but, worth it. Exactly. If anybody anywhere calls me up and they've got a legal cannabis operation, I'll try to come see you. No, because it's 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 an incredible opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. And Humboldt is, when you're looking at Humboldt farms, you're not looking at, hey, I always love the pictures. I look at my cannabis farm and I say, lift the drone up. It's a junkyard next door to you. Mm-hmm, that isn't yeah, what yeah, it looks yeah. like here. And, and people talk about how this place is decimated, but I'm telling you, man, it, that, no. that's a full of shit. Yeah. Because I fly helicopters all the time over these hills, right? And I'm being... I, I've watched over the years the cleaning of the farms. I've, they, yeah, you see a couple dirty operators, but I'm telling you, the number of farms that are clean right now, the trash has been put away. It is. It's it, just something the cops say, man. It's bullshit. It's, it's just it's, something it's, the and, cops and everybody's, say. It's like, oh, they were spilling diesel fuel. They had an illegal diesel operator, and, and that like, means he no, had a fuel can. That fuel, I was a fuel, fuel can, can that he that he was using to do his lawnmower, yeah, right. and it was on the ground, and they took a picture of it. I mean, it's. It's the same old shit, but the thing is, if you really get up in a plane or get up in a helicopter yourself and you don't listen to this little myopic view of, oh my God, mm-hmm. look at the hole they cut in the forest. Get the camera up a little higher and you're going to realize that you can't even see the goddamn hole in the forest. Mm-hmm. I have a three acre conversion and someone was like, look what you did. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in the middle of 5,000 acres of covered ground. Explained. We're not, we're not, this isn't, this is, and the, and these conversions are approved by the county, meaning that they match what should be done per land size and piece. So really the work that's been done here is not so horrible. You have some, you have some grading that was done, but I'm telling you every other industry in the United States has so much more egregious violations. It's not even funny. 
Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable what, we, what you get jammed they, yeah, for. Yeah, they've been really strict on cannabis. but So know, in the future, when people get a chance to see Humboldt County, they'll see a gorgeous place that's going to blow their mind. And they're going to go, wow. And at that time, these the farms that can survive this period will be able to have the the, the craft mm-hmm. definition. There is no giant... I bet what's, I don't know what the biggest wine company is, but I bet they're not, I bet they're not the one producing 95 point cabs. <laughs> you know, I bet they're not that they're guy. Not you know, yeah, 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 they're, yeah, they're not, yeah. you know? And so, like I said, you have to get commercial as the basement in order to build craft as the ceiling. And right now it's all this incredibly mixed population and nobody knows. And the black market yeah. and the white market emerged like a goddamn zipper. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, and it goes up and down depending on people's d- need for the day. And so once you start to get this shit stabilized, then you'll be able to have true distinction of what excellent product is. And everyone believes everybody wants indoor and they do from a specific point of view because it's what they know. It's just like how most people date color, same color. Most cats like people that own color. It's just, it's natural. It's just how people go that route. You have to reach outside your, your boundaries and experience what other people like. You want to hang out with different cultures. You got to go check them out. It, it, it's 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 imperative. Otherwise, In most of all the country, the only weed people get is the oh, weed they can actually get. get. So it doesn't matter to them indoor, outdoor, greenhouse, mm-hmm. light depth. They don't even know. And nope. that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, here. and we well, don't even uh, know yet from craft cannabis to commercial cannabis. No, and they don't they, even well, know yet. They don't know too because most everything that they've seen has been through cannabis magazines because you've been advertising mm-hmm. cannabis that's been grown indoor because of the, the drug war. Oh, it took me years to be able to recognize different types of cannabis. And I've and it's production at methodologies. high times and I'm like, oh man, I don't understand. It all looks the same. Yeah. Until, you know, it, t- it just took a minute and, you know, Took me actually to start growing it and see other cannabis really. Well, you see some crazy stuff where you're at because you have high altitude cannabis. So you see you you see UV effects that are extreme. Absolutely. And you see some the outdoor the greenhouse. And and, and at the level of, of dryness that you have with that level of UV, you get some of the craziest colors coming out of the the resin. And and some of the neatest morphological changes in the flower, if you look at it under scope. Yeah, I mean it it's it's unique yeah, too, man. And and, um, and bottom line is smoke the shit. It's a drug. If you closed your eyes, would you care? No, you only care when you want to shoot it on Instagram. Mm. And what people are going to find in a minute is that if I can give you a high quality outdoor product, what I like about outdoor mostly, and that's why I smoke so much of it, is that it stays lit. That outdoor pot stays lit better than indoor pot because it has a higher level of waxes and, and lipids typically. And, and the terps are, are sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the varietal but different ranges of it. And a lot of it is bioprotectants to help you avoid desiccation. And so what you end up having is the plant, when I light up a good outdoor joint, it can look like it went out, but I can puff on it dry and it blows back into flame. Yeah, I, I love outdoor. That's what brought me to Humboldt. Me too, man. And I, lo- and I like growing in. I mean, I was somebody who ran really big indoor, indoor operations outdoor. back in the day, but I love indoor. Oh man, fool. Indoor hydro, there's nothing better. No, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Each individual like their thing, but, <laughs> hey, but, yeah, but you're yeah, also- but no, The best bottle of wine is the one you like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Not the price, but the one you the like. The one you like. And so there's going to be a market for indoor flower. It's just going to be at a higher price point because the, the outdoor model is a little- it is. Yep. The outdoor yep, model is a little more, fa- more effective. Money. And right, so absolutely. if- if And you'll have two levels of- of craft you'll have indoor craft and you'll have all of the production models mm-hmm. so we're going to call supplemental greeny uh dap or, or you know regular outdoor we're just going to call that different than indoor mm-hmm. and and all of those will have a, a high level uh, end result and all of them will have a, a home and a destination it just depends on where you're at 
I'm somebody that because I live here, I don't want to depend on electricity. See, if you live in an humble county, like my new operation I put in the new nursery, I got to have a 400 kW generator as a backup, right? right. Just to power mm-hmm. the goddamn the the the, the when the, the wind the power goes out. Yeah, Not and it, it will. Wind. It goes out like 15, 18 days a year. No, I not, got I got 250 hours on my generator last year from, yeah. from the power going out. That's, that's ten. That's that's generator. ten days. And I'm yeah. in town, yep. so to speak. And so this you, is yeah, right? this is real, man. So. I didn't, I never wanted to get into, you know, heavy indoor production for my farm. I wanted, I, I don't mind doing cannabis business. And that's how I see the nursery application as cannabis business. The farm is like me still being old me where I'm getting to actually produce cannabis in the way that I want to in a, in a, in a manner that lets me feel happy because I enjoy being outside. So for me being able to be outside on the property and have an emotional connection to it, 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 it was it was more the big picture. It, it, no, it's not as efficient. No, there's not as much money, but there's a good profit and there's a quality of life that I get from the farm that I can't get from the nursery. I can't get, I, when I put on a containment suit, I'm not, I'm not happy. When I'm under uh, any kind of light, I'm not happy. I, it, I, I, I know that it's uh, artificial. So I use all those tools because they're required but man, for me to be outside on the farm, to see the, the bears run by, I got links all over the place. There's bobcat, there's mountain lion. I mean, when you see a mountain lion running across your garden, you, it's pretty nice. And I- You I, made pucker, the pucker factor. Yeah, it tightens you up a little, man. The bear too, the bear are huge. They're big up on the farm. But I never have a single problem with any of these animals. My buddy's property this year got ran with cows. Oh, that's funny. Just don't put hay down. If they, you just don't put hay down, you're good. The ranchers- Cows got the cages stuck to their paws and dragged them through the entire oh, garden. That's uh, hysterical. No, we had we had the cows come from a neighbor's. They 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 smelt the hay. My my dude had put some alfalfa down as a as a oh, as a top, and they smelled that stuff from a mile away. And then they led themselves up the mountain. And goddamn cows are they are some nimble. They look like they slow until you they hungry. And, and holy <laughs> shit, they are man. They move. But, oh man. Well, we've talked about everything from cows to to modern cannabis yeah. on this episode. It's been great having you guys, man. Oh, it's um, been a pleasure, man. It's been I, a pleasure. I, I, we could talk weed all day, but I'm I'm gonna have to come down for a part two for sure. And uh, yeah, man. Uh, anything you guys want to want to you guys want to shout out anything here? What are you doing? Yeah, you know what? I'll shout out to man. I got we got the Golden Tarp going on November eighteenth. I got the, right. got the Golden Tarp right. So the Golden Tarp was a light depth competition. So what? What me and my partner Oost did. Pedro is his last name. Well, his, his nickname Oost means bro in Samoan, right? So he's he's uh, my career partner. So me and him. I mean, we've been hustling together. You, I say that sometimes to people go, I didn't know you were lovers. And I'm like, we're not. So you have to watch out. He's weird partner, right? Yeah, partner. But I do love partner. him. Yeah, career partner. Career partner. So we career partners. And uh, he and I were chilling one day and I said, oh, so I said, we ought to come up with a, a, a light depth competition because we're pulling tarp all the time, you know? And he was laughing. He goes, hey, let's do it. And I said, let's call it the Golden Tarp Awards. And we created uh-huh. the first light depth competition. And then we, what we did is we also, uh, it was the first competition that ever was really fully judged as if it was completely legal so that the competitors would start to understand what a real judging thing was, meaning all pathogenetic material, all toxic shit was being tested. And then we broke it up into terp categories for the first time. So it was really, we, we kind of, we created the first depth cup, first terp cup, first cup that was really lab certified all the way through to the end. And it allowed people to really get an idea of what the future was coming. 
And then what we did is we really tried to promote the winner of the cup. What I, what I said was like, listen, man, I was, I saw this movie one time. I think it was called Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And the guy comes in and he's going to give a bonus and he goes, all right, first prize trip to Hawaii. Second prize set of steak knives. And I, I love that because the winners should get all the recognition. And so what we do is we get the top 16 up there on the stage and we give them all recognition, but the real winner of the tarp, there's only one winner. There isn't like in placement, your top 16, your top 16, you don't know if you were second or 16th, but what you know is there's one winner and that winner we tried to drive forward and, and give that person really high level of recognition because otherwise why be in a competition? Absolutely. That's and then we created the Gangier Award, which was an award that I really created uh, off of a woman named Samantha Miller. Now, Samantha Miller owns Pure Analytics uh, Lab in Sonoma and and she was such a driving force in getting growers to trust and use laboratory services to refine process that in my mind, she single-handedly transformed the intelligence level of the entire West Coast cannabis community. And it was such an incredibly powerful thing that she did that I, I created a ward just to, note, just to say, listen, I said, people like you need to be noted. People that are kicking that ass, but they're not getting any recognition. And so the Gangier Award was created for Samantha Miller. And so we give that out every year. And Samantha Miller got it the first year. Last year, Terrence Allen received it. Terrence Allen is a noted San Francisco activist. He was the one who really got San Francisco to decriminalize cannabis off the list. And he was instrumental in 215. And he's been nothing but a powerhouse in the cannabis industry. He couldn't be a better human being. And I just said, you know what, man, I says, you need to be recognized too. And then last year was a, a, another individual that to me epitomized the, the future of cannabis. And he's a career cannabis person, but he, he got shot at his delivery job delivering cannabis. And he calls me from the ICU as his mom called me and said, hey, I don't know if I can make it to the competition. I, I got shot, but I'll try. And I said, you know, when you're that devoted to what you do, you really epitomize the, the, the <laughs> spirit of cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely. I mean, I'm telling I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can make it. I'm in the ICU. I might, I might die. But my, my, so I'm getting it. And I'm sitting there like, was, and I, that was really real. I got text from this shit. And I tripped out and I said, you know what? You're going to be the Gangier Award winner last year. And so the Gangier Award is, is same thing. It's an award just to recognize, because see, in cannabis, everybody's always giving awards to people that are already famous because it's a nice way to like, hey, let's all clap for the same guy because we all know him. And, and for me, I'm like, I really don't give a shit you clap for me or not. I just want to do the job. But there's other people that need to be clapped for because they've worked so hard and the they've been under- hero. Bingo. They've been underappreciated. Pioneers. Underappreciated. Yeah, man. And I, and I, so I did that. And so the Golden Tarp this year, though, what we did different was we realized that, and we, and we did good too, man. The Tarp is- we, we, we're probably, I think we may, might pull like 300 entries. And unlike most mm. cups, we only lose maybe less than a percent because everybody who enters my competition fully, it fully knows that it's going to get run through a lab. Well, yeah, there is no plan. This, this is a real one. And so the first year we had the cup, we had 50% DQ, but it was only two or three of them were from contaminants that were from owner applied. What it was, was it, re it revealed the impact of fire on cannabis because all I, I scatter plotted it. I took all because I was curious as to what a huge DQ rate was. So it was 100 entries came in first year, 50 of them passed. The 50 that passed were not from the fire areas. The, the 50 that failed were. And so it started letting us understand where the fungal contaminate, what's the damage of fire on cannabis is that it kicks up the soil and that fungal concentration in the dirt now is moving and settling as deposition on your flowers. And so all these flowers were failing fungals and only in areas where there was near, it was all Lake County primarily. 
that let us understand impact on fire. So this year, when we had all the huge fires, I was talking to all these people trying to explain to them, look, the data showed that this is going to be some of the effects that we're going to see from fire. So the first one was this huge DQ, but the second, third one were two or three total and it's jumped up. It's almost doubled every time. So we should have a full 300 coming in right oh, now that's samples. That's education in its and, finest. And we're only, yeah, and, and, and we don't out anybody. We give you all your paperwork privately. None of this is meant to ever, you know, it's the same thing when oil came in. When we first started messing with oil back in the day, I started seeing all the dirty samples. And so what I did is I brought in some really high level black market blowers and I, and I let them talk to all the young guys privately. I brought them to a building. I shut the door, let everybody, like there was nobody in there with microphones. And all the young guys that I knew that were doing all this work in Humboldt, I let them talk to a couple of experienced guys that really knew what they were doing. And they got a primer on how not to blow up your goddamn house and how not to, to dis- destroy a burgeoning industry. Mm. And it really, really brought down the problems in Humboldt. Now, I mean, whether, whether people want to admit that's what made it happen or not, I'm not saying that was the sole cause of it, but I know for a fact that it absolutely transformed the lab reports coming across my desk. So I'm a drop off for lab. So I see everybody's product coming through. So it means that I know how many failures are occurring and how many aren't. And when we started to see our impact on people's failure rates diminishing radically, we knew we were doing the right work. We knew we were given the right direction. We knew we were pushing the right, the right information. And so the golden tarp was meant really to drive an awareness to light deprivation the greenhouse industry ended up really getting interested in it because it drove mm-hmm. a huge awareness to light depth. So in a lot of ways, we legitimized light depth as, a, as an industry. And this year, we realized that the grower was just basically being beat to death financially with the changes in revenue and that we didn't want to ask the growers to really have to support this. So like when we, when we do the competition, that you pay just for lab testing. There is no other cost to you as the, as the grower. As the entry, it's, right. It's straight up just lab testing, all lab testing. And if you don't, Sponsors, and, they help. Yeah, they the spot. The, the, and, yep. And what we operation. did this year was we went after a digital platform where we're going to do a very comprehensive streaming of the entire judging process. So we're going to give you four hours of 21 pro judges and other people that aren't pros. People we pull off a of contest and off the street, basically, meaning like they're just regular people that just like to smoke weed. Yeah. And they, we call them the wild cards because mm-hmm. they pick what they like, not what they know. And what it does is it allow the world to see the event because we're not going to charge for that. So the 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 sponsors are going to carry the, the weight. We're going to give them a level of advertising that's going to be mind bending. We hooked up with the company that does the NFL's platform and EA Sports, and so that's what we're going to use as our digital graphical platform, where that's what you're interacting with, that's what you're watching, that's what'll control all the feeds, and it'll allow us to be able to have a tremendous amount of exposure for the sponsors. Everyone who's sponsoring us be able to hold this, that, that video for a year. So for a yeah, whole year, we'll have it great. through our own site, through Ganga. But we we think we're about to get a, a penetration that's going to be mind bending because we've designed it so you could watch it off your phone. Oh, and, excellent. And that's the oh, whole point. modern technology. Yeah. Because oh, this was just- Stuck up in the hills with the radio. Yeah. Now you get a phone. You got a phone. You and I realized that-, that <laughs> And the reason why I wanted to do this was because what people rely on is they rely on people coming to the event for the money. It's the ticket sales that make money for cannabis events. Mm-hmm. And all the vending, all the other stuff covers the cost of the businesses, but the sales of the tickets are what drives you into profit. And what we realized was that that the majority of ticket sales are the people who are, are involved with cannabis. You know, you're smoking it, you're growing it to some degree. And everybody that's involved with cannabis, unless you got an investor brother, is suffering financially. And what I realized was I would love to have a competition that that shines and highlights my cultivators, 
but doesn't force everyone to have to go get a hotel room, drive five hours. And so we know that we're going to fill up town and we know that we're going to get business into God. That's why we've always kept it in Southern Humboldt. We, we, we're going to have a trade show in Soham like we always do. Mm-hmm. This way we fill the restaurants and the hotels. But we wanted to have a tremendous number of people who couldn't afford this come and enjoy it with us. Right. And so we said, listen, awesome. if we can create a digital design, it'll work. So you can go on and you look up the goldentalk.com. November, November 18th. You can come on and tune in for free anywhere you want in the world and watch the Golden Tarp. And you're going to get to see, you got to see it. What is that? GoldenTarp.com? GoldenTarp.com. Okay. The GoldenTarp.com. And the the quality, the flowers are unreal. Some of the farmers are just killing it right now. I mean, the depth was unbelievable. Depth was not affected by fire. So you're looking at probably the best of the season by far right now. Can't wait to see it. Oh, me neither, brother. It's going to be off the hook. This last two weeks of sun. And we just had, we just, we just had the, the, the drop-offs just ended like a day or so ago. So everything is really, really good for it. And the, the participants are ecstatic because the, it it does well for them to get the coverage. And and if you don't make it into the cup, we give you your cannabis back. All you did was pay for a a test that you need anyways to sell your cannabis. So you didn't get screwed. It, that's the whole point is that our demographic mm-hmm. has been has been the cash cow for everything the whole time. And now we're not the cash cow. The pick and shovel salesmen have to be the cash cows. The people that you want to advertise to is the new public, people who you don't know, people that are all over the place that can become aware of your brand, aware of what you're doing, get knowledge and, and, and appreciation of cannabis and start to understand what craft cannabis is compared to commercial cannabis. Otherwise, there is no price distinction. There is no recognition. There is no future on a small level. And so hopefully, you know, the tarp with its digital push gives us that. We're going to find out. I mean, I could, yeah. I could, I could, I could tank, fall over and die on it, but we, we uh, think. You guys have been doing it for years. It's going to be great. But you know, but there's always, curve there's always a fair. Sure. Yeah. And like, you know, that's how it goes. Well, I look forward to it. And this, awesome. this has been a great episode. And uh, I'm, I'm going to thank you guys again for joining us here on The Real Dirt. If you enjoyed this episode and others, download it at therealdirt.com. You can also download it on iTunes, The Real Dirt Podcast. Love you guys. Stay high. Right on. Beautiful day. Beautiful day.